This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm going to talk about how philosophy and biology should work together, and then about how their complementary relationship is disrupted by scientism and its relatives, focusing on what the two disciplines can teach us about human nature. Philosophy is a big-picture discipline. It starts from our shared experience of reality. For example, we all know that we're alive because we're hearing people right now. We have feelings and so forth. Science, on the other hand, seeks to discover detailed knowledge about living things. And in the um, case of biology, the, living, the, the things in question are living things. So science studies things in general, natural things in general, and biology studies living things. Okay, so the starting point for biologists is experience that they gain by doing experiments or by making scientific observations. An example of the latter would be Jane Goodall's observations of chimpanzees in the wild. Unlike the shared experiences that philosophers look to, the experiences of the scientists belong to only those who have done the experiments or made the scientific observations. Not everyone has seen a neuron or a rat run a maze. This experience, however, doesn't erase or replace our common shared experience. For example, we know before we study science what seeing is. What science does reveal to us is that our internal experience of seeing doesn't tell us everything about seeing. Namely, it tells us that seeing involves the optic nerve and the occipital lobe of the brain, and not just our eyes. It will tell us about the different kinds of cells that the eyes are made out of, and then what those cells are made out of. And it will tell us how the various parts of the optical system will work, work together. An imperfect analogy of how the part of philosophy that deals with living things stands to biology is that philosophy provides a sketch of what is true about organisms, and biology fills in the details. A sketch of a human face will not include eight eyes or a beak but rather two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Filling in the detail completes the face. It doesn't erase or replace the two eyes, the nose, and the mouth. In a somewhat similar manner, philosophy gives us knowledge of the human as living and broad outline, and biology completes that picture. So what disrupts what ought to be an organic and complementary relationship between philosophy and biology? It mostly occurs when scientists pretend to be philosophers and vice versa. Philosophers do sometimes think they know more than they do when it comes to detailed knowledge about living things. So for example, Thomas Aquinas thought that the reason that humans have a poor sense of smell is because they need to have a big brain so that we can imagine and remember, and he's right about that. But then he goes on to say that this big brain, due to its moistness, impedes the sense of smell, which requires dryness. Since the demise of earth, air, fire, and water, and the rise of the scientific method, philosophers are generally pretty shy about making forays of this sort into biology. The opposite problem is when scientists play the philosopher. The late philosopher of science, Mariano Artigas, coined the expression, oracles of science. To name people who claim to bring us momentous messages in the name of science concerning the way things are, including who we are, when in fact what they're doing is philosophizing. The most extreme example of this is scientism, the claim that science is the only reliable source of truth. One can readily see that such a view is self-refuting. It was not arrived at as the result of experiments or scientific observation. 
So the one who holds that science is the only source of truth denies it in claiming it to be true. Scientism does not seem to stem so much from science as from a prejudice against the possibility that the supernatural exists. At least this is evidence, this is an evidence in evolutionary biologist Richard Lewontin's espousal of scientism, and I quote, the primary problem is not to provide the public with the knowledge of how far it is to the nearest star and what genes are made of. Rather, the problem is to get them to reject irrational and supernatural explanations of the world, the demons that exist only in their imaginations, and to accept a social and intellectual apparatus, science, as the only begetter of truth." End quote. Other oracles of science champion the philosophical views of materialism and reductionism as if the ability to do science depended upon them. Science involves observing material entities either directly or indirectly, and it often, although not always, explains what's more complex by what's simpler. However, the success of the scientific method does not determine the nature of reality. A comparison that's helpful here is that of a fisherman with a net that has two-inch holes. The fisherman would be wrong to conclude that what his net does not catch is not a fish. The scientific net or method captures certain important aspects of reality, but that doesn't mean that it determines what exists or does not exist in reality. So it's a mistake to think that science provides definitive evidence that all of reality is material and observable. Scientists taken in by this way of thinking either dismiss in advance any possibility that humans have immaterial faculties, such as intellect and free will, or seek ways to discredit that evidence and substitute a materialistic explanation. Similarly, explaining how life activities occur in terms of the parts involved is a very successful approach. For example, it's amazing that biology discovered that some people suffer from anemia because their red blood cells are sickle-shaped, and that the sickle shape is due to protein misfolding. And the protein misfolding is due to a point mutation, and the allele with this mutation survives in the population because being heterozygous for sickle cell anemia is beneficial if one is liable to contract malaria. But such successes do not justify statements such as, and I quote, we're a bunch of chemical reactions running around in a bag, end quote, an affirmation made by the geneticist Dean Hammer, or, I quote, we're, we are survival machines, robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes, end quote, a statement made by the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. Okay, so one of the first casualties of reductionism in biology is the soul. The part of natural philosophy that investigates living things focuses in first instance on what makes an organism a living body and not just a body. And this is the soul. Aristotle says there's no doubt that we have a soul. We all experience ourselves as being more than a body occupying space. We have thoughts, feelings, and we make decisions about how we move our bodies. This experience is an experience of our soul. The first and most basic concept of the soul is life principle or cause of the life activities, cause of seeing, hearing, digesting your food. We know life first and best in ourselves, but we observe signs of life in other things as well. Some things move on their own and others do not. There's gotta be a cause of this difference. Now you might say that plenty of scientists and philosophers deny that there's such a thing as a soul. This is quite true. 
This is not because they don't experience themselves as having feelings and thoughts and so forth, or that they don't think that there must be a cause for the fact that they have feelings and thoughts and corpses and rocks do not. Where the disagreement lies is as to the nature of this cause. They think that life activities can be explained by the body's parts and their interactions without remainder. This is really more a disagreement about what the soul is than a denial that there must be something about humans that accounts for our experience of seeing, feeling, emotion, and so forth, and similarly for other organisms. But let's look at why various scientists and philosophers deny that we and other living things have souls. Now, one place we can start is by examining why these thinkers sometimes show hesitation in rejecting the notion of the soul. Atheist evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins acknowledges that science cannot currently explain consciousness, and for this reason, science has not as yet killed the soul. Others, however, are less reticent. Consider a typical discussion of consciousness and other emergent properties in the opening chapter of the popular college-level biology textbook, Life. And I quote, each level of organization has properties called emergent properties that are not found at lower levels. Many emergent properties of systems result from interaction among their parts. Examples of properties that emerge through complex interactions are memory, learning, consciousness, and emotions such as hate, fear, envy, anger, and love. These properties result from interactions in the human brain among the trillion cells with a quadrillion connections. Emergent properties do not violate principles that operate at lower levels of organization. However, emergent properties usually cannot be detected or even suspected by studying the lower levels. Biologists could never discover the existence of human emotions by studying single nerve cells, even though they may be able to eventually explain those emotions in terms of the interaction among many nerve cells, end quote. So when it comes to determining whether the soul is unneeded to explain consciousness, the question to ask regarding emergent properties is whether they're simply collective properties or whether they are properties that are not fully explainable in terms of the parts and their interactions. Many collective wholes manifest properties that go beyond what any individual part could do. A group can move a piece of furniture that an individual could not. A bicycle can serve as a means of transportation, whereas a pedal or handlebar cannot. A lone individual cannot play football. However, the things that the collective whole can do, which the individual parts or members cannot, are nevertheless able to be traced back to the parts. The biology book favors the view that consciousness, emotion, and so forth are collective properties. And I quote again, biologists could never discover the existence of human emotions by studying single, single nerve cells, even though they may be able to eventually explain those emotions in terms of interactions among many nerve cells, end quote. The optimism that a full understanding of perception, consciousness, emotion, and so forth will be reached in terms of understanding how many cells work together is ill-founded. For example, if it were possible to present a blind person with a complete biological account of all the parts involved in vision and the way these parts interact when people see, the blind person would still not understand what, what seeing is. 
The closest one could get to convey what sight is to a blind person would be not in the scientific terms of biology, but in terms of everyday experience. One could tell the person that just as seeing is awareness of sounds and tasting is awareness of flavors, so too there's another form of awareness that bears on yet another kind of sensible quality. Similarly, a description of the physical changes occurring in a person who feels fear, no matter how detailed, would not provide a complete account of fear. Ordinarily, we feel fear when we're aware of a future evil difficult to avoid. Although the feeling of fear is not independent of a certain bodily state, it cannot be fully explained in terms of this state. If we were to ask a person, why are you afraid? And got us a response that the hormone epinephrine was acting upon our heart cells and so forth, we would not be satisfied. Fear is ordinarily fear of something, just as sadness is sadness about something. It's not like growing taller. Any number of questions can be asked about fear that have no reference to physiological factors. Can fear itself be feared? Is defect a source of fear? Emotion is not the sort of thing, a surface tension, which we can fully understand once we better understand water molecules. Ultimately, it's a form of reductionism to understand emergent properties such as seeing and feeling afraid as collective properties of interacting parts. The inadequacy of such a view is part of the reason why we need to posit the existence of a soul. The soul is what makes the cells in the eye that are coordinated with other cells in the brain capable of being an instrument of sight in the organism. Sight is the ability to be aware of color. The cause which makes a thing one living substance and not a mere collection of parts is the same cause which enables the parts of the thing to do more than a mere collection of interacting parts is capable of. And there is an, indeed a need for a cause that makes the living thing genuinely one and not just a collection of parts. This can be seen by reflecting on death. Some scientists regard organisms to be essentially very complex machines. However, there are striking differences between the organism that, is, that has died and the machine that is broken down. When a squirrel dies, it goes from being one squirrel to being a bunch of chemicals. When a machine breaks, it goes from being a collection of parts to being a collection of parts with one or more broken parts. There's a change for one to many in the case of the organism, which does not occur in the case of the machine. When a machine breaks, it can no longer move in a way that allows it to perform its human-assigned function. And similarly, when a living thing dies, it can no longer move in the ways it used to in view of preserving its life and reproducing. However, when the living thing dies, not only do its parts cease to move, they cease to be what they were. Granted, at death, not all organic parts lose their ability to function instantaneously. Still, without some special intervention, such as transplanting them, they do so in a relatively short period of time. The broken machines, non-broken parts, do not precipitously corrupt. And if one removes a part from a living thing and from a machine, one observes the same difference. Thus, there must be something in the living thing that unifies its parts and gives them their identity as parts. And that's what the soul is. Now, it should be clear that the discussion above is not a scientific discussion, but rather a philosophical one. 
There's no scientific experiment or observation that can rule out that living things have souls. It's not science, but rather it's the oracles of science who tell you that you do not have a soul, or alternately that your soul is nothing but the dynamic relationship of your body's cells or molecules. What science can tell us about are the interactions of the parts of our body that are necessary if we are to stay alive. Science figured out, for example, what the kidneys do and why kidney failure leads to death. It's not possible to fully understand a living thing by understanding the soul alone. One has to understand the body as well. And since soul and body need to be suited to one another, a dog soul cannot enliven a mushroom body. Even a full understanding of the soul requires an understanding of the body. And this is where biology excels. Another thing that the oracles of science are fond of telling us, one that's closely related to the devile that living things have souls, is there's nothing special about human beings. For example, evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould insists, and I quote, the only honest alternative to maintaining a strict division between our abilities and those of apes is to admit the strict continuity in kind between ourselves and chimpanzees. And what do we lose thereby? Only an antiquated concept of soul to gain a humble, even exulting vision of our oneness with nature." End quote. I note in passing that no ape is reading Gould's book, but be that as it may, Gould is simply echoing Darwin, who said, and I quote, some naturalists, from being deeply impressed with the mental and spiritual powers of man, have divided the whole organic world into three kingdoms, human, animal, and vegetable, thus giving to man a separate kingdom. Spiritual powers cannot be compared or classed by the naturalist. But he may endeavor to show, as I've done, that the mental faculties of man and lower animals do not differ in kind, although immensely in degree." End quote. The convincing convergent scientific evidence that living things, including humans, have evolved, coupled with the misguided view that living things, including humans, do not have a soul, results in these scientists ruling out the possibility that while the human body evolved, the human soul has a supernatural cause. Thus, they're biased in advance towards the view that humans are simply another animal. Some falling in Darwin's footsteps will try to convince us that there are other animals that have basically the same kind of cognitive abilities that we do. In other words, we're smarter than other animals when it comes to certain tasks, but that's the extent of the difference. And then there are others that try to convince us that free will and morality, which we think sets us apart from animals, are merely illusions. So what I want to do here is lay out some of the philosophical reflections that show that humans are not merely physical beings, starting with our capacity for abstract thought. Now, we all experience both that we sense things that we think, and that we think about them. It belongs to philosophical reflection to determine whether there is a difference between sensing and thinking. If it would be the case that there is no difference and thinking is simply another form of sensing, then there would be no third type of living thing alongside plant and animal. However, if there is, then biology can step in to adapt the philosophical knowledge in a way that will allow us to test whether a chimpanzee or a member of another species is capable of abstract thought. So there's any number of mean, different meanings of the word intelligence, an animal that can learn, in some senses, intelligent. But the word intellect 
is usually reserved to name a very specific form of intelligence, one that's different from the sensory knowledge that makes animals capable of learning. How exactly does intellectual knowledge differ from sense knowledge? Well, the intellect is capable of grasping universal truths, physical and chemical laws, various philosophical truths, and very simple truths, basic principles, such as the whole is greater than the part, and equals added to equals give equals. In order to understand these truths, we must first form the individual concepts involved, whole, part, greater. Now, a number of thinkers maintain that there is no difference between a concept or abstract thought and a sense perception. However, the senses only know particular things. I see and smell this rose, not rose in general. Imagination is a type of sensibility, as it too apprehends what is particular. I imagine this rose, not rose in general. But the intellect forms the universal concept rose, which it understands to belong to every rose that is, was, and ever will be. It's not that hard to see that image and idea or thought are not the same thing. So everyone think of a dog. Think of a dog. Okay. When you're asked to think of a dog, you do two things. You picture a particular dog, and you bring to mind the concept dog. And it's obvious that these two things differ. For example, when asked to think of a dog, you will imagine a dog of a certain size. For example, maybe you imagine a large dog, like a German Shepherd. Okay. Yet, upon being asked whether a small dog, like a Chihuahua, is a dog, you'll say, well, yes, of course. Well, if your concept of dog was the same thing as the image you initially formed, then you couldn't know that a small dog was a dog. The difference between the universal and the particular is reflected in the way we speak. We can't say that this dog is that dog, but we can say of every particular dog that it is a dog. The concept dog abstracts from the features that make a particular dog the particular dog that it is. A corollary of this is that concepts are not physical things. All physical things have some quantitative dimension. So go back to the example, think of a dog. The dog that you imagine has a size in your imagination. You could imagine a bigger or smaller dog next to the dog you initially imagined. Now in reality, a three foot high dog is bigger than a dog that's one foot high. And the image of a three foot high dog is greater in height than the image of a dog that's one foot high. But the concept three feet is not a bigger concept than the concept one foot. It's a concept of a bigger length, but it itself has no size. If the concept had a specific size, it would be an image of sorts and would not be applicable to everything that has a dimension of three feet. If we form and consider ideas with our intellect, the intellect cannot be an ability belonging to a merely physical thing. Physical things can act on other physical things, either imparting new accidents to them, such as warmth or a new location, or causing them to be transformed into another substance, as when a spark causes hydrogen and oxygen to form water. But physical things can't act on another physical thing and thereby turn it into a non-physical thing. There's always some underlying matter involved in physical changes that persists throughout the change. So neither the brain nor any body part can produce an idea, and this shows that our intellect must be immaterial. 
A complementary argument for the immateriality of the intellect stems from considering the way in which less general concepts fall under a more general concept. In the Platonic dialogue, the Parmenides, it suggested the more general concept is like a tent that covers a number of different things. So, for example, the concept animal would cover the concepts dog and pig and frog. However, the problem with that is that the tent, only part of the tent, covers each of the things that fall under it. Yet the whole concept animal applies to the concepts of dog and pig and frog. Everything that's true of animal is true of pig. Everything that's true of animal is true of dog, and so forth, and not just part of what's true of animal. So the extension the concept animal has cannot be some type of physical extension, in which case the intellect that forms the concept also cannot be a physical thing. As I'm sure you've noticed, the considerations just made were rather abstract. They involve thinking about thinking and imagining, and they didn't involve experiments, measurements, or observations using the sense of sight. In my experience, the scientists who deny that the intellect is radically different than sense never examine the above arguments, much less, refer to, much less refute them, despite the fact that they date back to Plato and Aristotle. However, the scientists who view that all conscious behavior is a product of the nervous system do point to an obvious fact that seems to give credence to the materialistic viewpoint. Namely, if the brain is not the organ of thought, which it can't be if the intellect is immaterial, why do things like drunkenness affect one's ability to think, and why does severe brain damage render thought impossible? This is a good question. Long ago, Aristotle provided the answer. Thinking abstractly depends on imagining, and imagining is a brain function. Just as cooking dinner depends on having obtained food, and yet these are two different activities, so too thinking depends on imagining, and while thinking does not involve the brain or any other organ, imagining is an activity carried on using the brain. Just as I can't cook if I have no food, the intellect cannot think without an appropriate image. Why? Well, we can't form a, a concept of a tree or a cat without first sensing those things. If what we perceive leaves no lasting impression, we're not going to be able to form a thought. If you were to ask a person, what did you see, and that person were to respond, I don't know, I don't remember, that person's not going to have thoughts about that thing. So what we sense needs to be retained in our imagination if we're going to form a concept. Imagination is being take in a, taken in a very broad sense here, which includes memory. Okay? Even once we form concepts, when thinking those thoughts, there's still a need to do so in conjunction with imagination. Why? Well, the natures of material things exist in particular individuals. Thus, we cannot completely and truly conceive the natures of these things without reference to a particular individual, and particulars are apprehended by sense and imagination. Thus, when we want to understand in a clear way what some abstract statement means, we spontaneously relate it back to something that's concrete and imaginable. So, for example, the statement, as a thing is, so it acts, comes into sharp focus when we imagine a concrete example, such as a heavy person can lift, a strong person can lift a heavy object, and a weak person cannot. And the organ of the imagination is a part or parts of the brain. 
So again, thinking thoughts is an immaterial activity, yet it depends on an activity exercised using the brain, namely imagining. This is why if the parts of the brain required for imagining are affected, thinking thoughts is also affected. Now, one might object that many times we do not picture anything particular when we think. When most people think, what they most, uh, most obviously imagine most of the time are words. So people generally have a, a mental verbal stream, or sometimes they imagine written words. It remains the case, however, that if they're to truly and completely understand a material thing, we have to relate it back to more than just signs. We have to relate it back to something that's concrete and imaginable. Otherwise, whatever words might be in our mind are finally just that, they're words. They would lack a connection with reality. Most of the time when we think we're habitually capable of imagining an appropriate image and we simply don't bother to do so. Yet even in those cases, imagination seems important to the extent that we imagine words. It is possible to think without words. So sometimes we, we have a, we're thinking of something and we can't remember what its name is, right? Um, but it's irksome when we can't find the words we're looking for. It's second nature for us to, to think in terms of words. So it seems that if the part or parts of our brain that have to do with language were damaged, that this would in, at least initially impede thinking until such time as we became habituated to thinking without words. To this general picture of thinking depending on imagining, science has a lot to add. For example, it has brought us a great deal of, of knowledge about the parts of the brain that play a critical role in speech and language. All right, so we've seen that it pertains to philosophy to distinguish abstract thought from imagination and sensation in general, and thus it's philosophy that establishes that there is a radical difference between rational and non-rational animals. But then the question arises, are human beings the only animals that are rational? Most of us do not own a chimpanzee, and some of us don't even have a pet. We might see sparrows or squirrels in our neighborhood, but few of us try to make regular observations of some aspect of their behavior. Are the sparrows talking to each other? I do think that there's some glaring signs that other animals are not rational beings. For example, if they were, they'd be curious about us, as we are about them and about extraterrestrial life, and they would try to communicate with us so long as they weren't afraid of us or too busy finding food. Still, unlikely as it may seem that there's another irrational animal on Earth besides us, closer and more careful observation of specific animals is in order, in order to be sure that we're not overlooking something. So science has made a number of discoveries concerning the cognitive ability of animals, one of which is the fact that certain animals can make tools not merely in instinctually, but as the result of learning. So in the 1960s, Jane Goodall discovered that chimpanzees can make a tool with which to fish for termites. I'm gonna leave aside tool making, however, to focus on the language studies, as I think they have the most direct bearing on whether other species of animals are rational. During the 1960s through the 1980s, there were a variety of studies that, that explored whether animals are capable of language. The animals chosen for these studies were the ones that were known to be able to solve problems and they had a big brain. These smart animals are the great apes, the cetaceans, and certain birds. I will talk primarily about apes, but what I can say can be verified in the case of studies with these other animals. It's reasonable to think that if the smartest animals do not have language, 
that those that are less intelligent lack it as well. I understand a necessary component of language to be single symbols that signify concepts. The other commonly understood component is grammar. Now, some apes have been taught symbolic means of communication. So at first they were, they were teaching them sign language. And the problem with sign language is the interpretation of the sign is somewhat subjective. Okay, So in order to make it more rigorous and objective, they, they turn to what they called lexigrams. So lexigrams are basically squares, and in each square there's a symbol for something like banana or tickle. And the squares can be put on a sheet of cardboard and the ape can point to them. They also have put them on like a laptop where the ape can depress the key and then it lights up on the screen and they can make little sentences like give banana. Um, and, I, and I just saw this morning that they, now they've put them on tablets. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what one sees if one looks at the transcripts of the ape's utterances is that they never ask questions for the purpose of gaining ideas about the world. Yet if they had the ability to form concepts about the world, they would naturally desire to actualize this ability. And once they had the words needed to ask questions about the world, they'd naturally ask questions about it. We see this in human children. According to a survey of a thousand mothers that was done by an online retail store, so it wasn't a scientific study, but still, Mothers are asked nearly 300 questions a day. <laughs> now, I think the number may be way too high, but little kids really do ask a lot of questions, all right? According to this survey, some of the toughest questions mothers get asked are, are these, okay? So about 35% of mothers got asked these three questions. Why is water wet? Where does the sky end? And what are shadows made out of? What this shows is that while children will certainly ask questions to get things, like cookies, can I have a cookie, right? They also ask many questions simply to increase their intellectual knowledge of the world. Apes, on the other hand, only ask questions to get things or to learn the names of things. They use language for the most part in a way similar to the pigeon that's been trained to push buttons in a certain sequence in order to get grain. So you can train pigeons to push colored buttons in a certain sequence, say red, blue, yellow. And the buttons are transposable, so you can put the yellow button where the, the red button was. And they'll remember the sequence, okay? But imagine now that you would put on those buttons, give pigeon grain. Would you now say, whoa, the pigeon has language? Of course not. You know that it's just using associative memory, and that's basically what's happening with the apes for the most part. Now, there are some cases that an animal asks for the name of something. So there is this gray, African gray parrot that you've probably heard about, Alex. Alex asked a student who was eating a carrot what it was called and what color it was. He was later able to identify orange-colored things, and he sometimes asked for carrots. Now, obviously, knowing the word for carrot was, for Alex, a means of getting carrots. As for learning the word for the color orange, Alex was often asked what color various objects were and would be rewarded for, their, for a correct answer. So it's not surprising that Alex itself would ask this question and store away the answer for future use. Alex's question was about a name for something, not about the reality itself. By contrast, a child might be in her parent's lab and ask, what's that? And her parent might say, oh, that's a centrifuge. But then the child might go on to, to ask, well, what's a centrifuge? Okay. 
So children are not just interested in, in learning the names of things. They want to know what things are. And, and so if we contrast Alex to Helen Keller, okay, we're going to see that she doesn't just ask for the names of things, but she wants to really understand things. So I quote from her autobiography here. I had now the key to all language, and I was eager to learn to use it. Children who here acquire language without any particular effort, the words that fall from others' lips, they catch on the wing, as it were, delightedly. Well, the little deaf child must trap them by a slow and often painful process. At first, when my teacher told me about a new thing, I asked very few questions. My ideas were vague, and my vocabulary was inadequate. But as my knowledge of things grew, and I learned more and more words, my field of inquiry broadened, and I would return again and again to the same subject, eager for further information." End quote. The apes that were subjects in the language studies had normal vision and hearing, and could see and hear all sorts of things that are apt to provoke questions in children, water, shadows, the sky, and so forth. And yet none of them asked a single question seeking knowledge for its own sake. Language unlocked Helen's mind. She had ideas, but she couldn't express them, nor did she have a way of seeking new ideas from others. By contrast, the language training of apes simply gave them a new way of requesting things. Similarly, linguistically trained apes do not carry on conversations, meaning an exchange on one topic in which the individuals share and seek knowledge for its own sake. Apes will repeat their requests in various forms, but they never even have a conversation like this one between a three-year-old and her mother. So the three-year-old asks her mother, mother, why is your tummy so big? And the mother says, I don't actually have a big stomach. And the three-year-old says, yes, it is. Did you eat too much? And the mother finally concedes, yes, darling, I must have. And a number of ape researchers agreed that if their apes would converse in this manner, it would show that they're rational beings. And one or two claimed that their apes did converse. However, when one looks at the apes' utterances, they are either simply requests put in different words, or the claim is made without any transcript of the conversation. The language studies are an example where philosophy and science could have done a better job collaborating. The scientists doing these studies sometimes complain that once their ape did such and such, which was supposed to be a sure test for rationality, then the philosophers would move the goalposts. What was absent, sometimes on the part of both philosophers and scientists, was a clear idea of the difference between intellect and the internal senses, such as memory and imagination. And so the tests they gave the apes were not properly designed to discern whether the apes were simply using associative memory or whether they were using reason. As I mentioned, some scientists had basically thought up the conversation test, but they were unclear what counted as a conversation and why the test was a good test for rationality. Despite missteps and misinterpretations, science did allow us to rule out the possibility that great apes and certain other smart animals are able to use arbitrary signs to express ideas, as would be the case if they were rational beings. So all the oracles of science will tell you that Darwin has knocked man off his pedestal. Actual science indicates other. The language studies show that other living things lack the capacity for abstract thought. All right, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about free will. 
but not too much, as another speaker is going to speak on that. Um, so other oracles of science attempt to level the hierarchy between humans and non-human animals by seeking to show that humans have no free will and consequently that morality is an illusion. We, like other animals, simply do what we have to do in function of nature and nurture. One of these oracles is William Provine, who was an expert on the history of evolution and genetics. According to Provine, science, specifically the theory of evolution, has shown that there is no God, and without God, there can be no free will. Provine is correct that if there's no God, then there could be no free will. Natural causes are material causes, and they're material causes that act in a deterministic manner. They're not going to explain free will, okay? So I see green because that's the, the, the light, some of the lights absorb, but the green light comes back, hits my eyes. I'm not free to see another color, okay? So you have material causes that act in a deterministic way. Then you have, maybe you have indeterministic causes. So depending on whether you buy into a certain interpretation of quantum mechanics, seems like maybe quantum indeterminism is a way to say free will, but it's not, okay? Because it doesn't matter whether our decisions are caused by determinate or indeterminate causes. As long as our decision is not caused by ourselves, we're not free. In other words, whether it's quirky events in our brains or whether it's necessary ones that make us decide to do something, on neither account are we free, for we're not in control of our decisions. It is only what is immaterial that is not subject to being pushed around by physical factors, be they determinate or indeterminate. Now, people object to this conclusion, saying it seems to make our freedom turn on the possession of an ability to defy natural laws, an ability that's hard to explain convincingly and even harder to show that we have. Well, this objection is based on a materialistic assumption. It assumes that everything that happens in the world is the result of exclusively physical causes acting according to natural laws. Is my thinking that this view is false, a product of physical causes acting on my brain according to natural laws? No. I reject this view on the basis of reasons, namely those given earlier concerning the immateriality of abstract thought. Indeed, the very fact that we can argue about free will shows that thought transcends the material world. Brains are not convinced by reasons, but are simply in one physical state or another due to the physical causes acting on them. If there are reasons to reject materialism, the conclusion that follows from it that free will cannot transcend physical causality is unwarranted. Now, Provine is right that an immaterial thing requires an immaterial cause to account for it. Where he goes wrong is thinking that the theory of evolution understood in the sense of what Darwin proposed is accounting for the origin of new species, that is, random variation and natural selection, proves that a supernatural cause, God, does not exist. First, Provine never actually gives the supposedly defeating argument, an argument that needs to be a philosophical argument, much less does he answer the multiple philosophical objections to the argument he alludes to. Secondly, even if random variation and natural selection did show that the order found in living things can arise without input from an intelligent being, the type of argument for God's existence that this supposedly refutes, the argument from design, is far from being the only argument for God's existence out there. 
So even if a cogent argument could be mounted that shows that the causes of evolution proposed by Darwin refutes design type arguments, one could not conclude from that that God doesn't exist, because there are all these other arguments that indicate that he does. You have to refute those as well. So Provine's appeal to science to take God out of the picture fails, and so a cause for free will remains available. Provine tries to disprove the existence of free will in an a priori way. So he's like, there can be no cause of it. So material causes, be they deterministic or indeterministic, they can't cause free will. There's no immaterial cause that could cause it, so there's just no free will. Okay? Other biologists try to show that free will does not exist by way of experiments. So physiologist Benjamin Libet's experiments in the 1980s are often cited as having shown that free will is an illusion. In these experiments, the participants were asked to flex their wrist whenever they felt like it, and then report the moment they became conscious of their intention to do so, which they kept track of by observing a modified clock that had a, a hand that moves really, really fast. We would expect that we first have conscious awareness of an intention to act, which would then activate the motor area of our brain resulting in a readiness potential, which would then send a signal to our hands or fingers so that we actually move. In the experiment, the participants' readiness potential spiked about 550 milliseconds before the actual motion, but the participants' reports of their intention to move preceded the motion by only 200 milliseconds. Conscious awareness of a desire to flex the wrist arose only after the brain got ready to send signals to the wrist. So it seems that our brain makes up our mind for us and that we only become consciously aware of our decision after the fact. Based on this experiment and other similar experiments, some people concluded that free will does not play a role in our decisions. Philosopher Andrew Mealy rejects this interpretation of Libet's experiments on the grounds that this test involves an arbitrary action where nothing's at stake and there's no reason to perform it at one time rather than another. Our everyday experience is that we make choices in order to obtain some good. If there's no good at stake, there's no need to make a choice. Many aspects of actions are morally indifferent. For example, putting your left sock on before your right sock. Does anyone here even know which sock they put on first, right? It's not, a, it's not an object of choice, okay? So this kind of big picture reflection pertains to philosophy. And this is what Mealy points to in the case of Libet's experiment. Mealy compares flexing one's wrist at a given time to being in a grocery store and picking out one jar of peanut butter rather than other like jars sitting right next to it. Picking this one or that one makes no difference. Whereas in the cases where we're clearly exercising free choice, what college to go to, whether to marry this person, some good is at stake, and it does matter which individual we choose. Even in more everyday choices, such as should I do the dishes or leave them for others, or should I attend this lecture, our decisions have consequences for good or for ill. Whereas again, it's inconsequential whether we pick the jar on the left or the right. So Libet's experiment involving flexing one's wrist really sheds no light on free will. Libet goes astray because he ignores the big picture. Even if we set aside Mealy's argument, there would still remain a manner of interpreting Libet's experiment in a way that's compatible with free will. So Libet's experiment also showed that people can choose to override the urge to flex. 
Their conscious decision to not flex after all, in response to the urge, precedes a flattening of the readiness potential that had been activated. Consequently, some concluded that our free will takes the form of free won't. Looked at this way, Libet's experiments don't reveal anything other than what ordinary experience tells us. We often have spontaneous inclinations to do certain things, but we can override them. For example, the smell of coffee as we walk by a coffee shop triggers the desire for a cup of coffee, but we don't have to act on that desire. And sometimes, for no reason known to ourselves, we feel like doing something and may even take steps towards doing it, but we can still override it and decide to stay on task. Our senses, including our internal senses such as memory and imagination, provoke various emotions without our choosing to feel them. But what we do in response to our emotions is something that we can make a decision about. So even if we are not to entirely reject Libet's experiments as having no bearing on free will, as Mealy does, here is yet another way to understand them, one that doesn't rule out free will. An urge for something specific arises, and then we become aware of it, but it doesn't determine our choice because we can always resist it at that point. So science gives you no reason for you to reject your experience that you need not have done things that you knew to be morally good or bad. You didn't have to stop and guide that lost soul to her destination. You didn't have to be rude to that customer service person who is in no wise responsible for her company's inconvenient policies. Science can't tell you that you had to do those things. Libby's experiment was doomed to failure because he didn't look at the big picture, namely that our choices do not bear on things that we regard as being of no consequence. It is the same sort of thing that happened in the case of the researchers studying whether apes have language. A good philosophical grip on the big picture is the necessary framework for formulating and interpreting these kinds of detailed studies. Most scientists do not make broad statements concerning human nature. They do science, controlled, detailed research generally done in the context of experiments. This detailed research does tell us a lot about physical interactions that are necessary if we're going to be able to carry on our various life activities of seeing, imagining, speaking, and so forth. And science does not only give us detailed knowledge about our bodies, but also about our mental faculties, exploring in detail phenomena such as how false memories are generated, how we're able to recognize faces, and what parts of the brain are involved in understanding language, just to name a few. Things go awry primarily when scientists in the name of science make sweeping statements about human nature that spring from unjustified philosophical viewpoints, including scientism, materialism, and reductionism. I hope that I've convinced you that while we can learn interesting and important details about ourselves from science, we need to be leery of the oracles of science who tell us that we have no soul and that we're not radically different from other animals. Thank you.